Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast is presented by Bones Coffee, the official presenting sponsor of the Can We Please Talk podcast. Nick, now we've had the coffee. All right. Before we lied. We lied. We didn't have the coffee. We thought it was good. Now we've had it. It's delicious as hell. But tell the people why they should be ordering Bones Coffee. I'm going to keep this short because I, you all know I'm a coffee nerd. Uh, let me put it to you like this. It's smooth and delicious. Yeah. And flavorful. Like you can, one of those three often falls apart when we talk, when you talk about coffee. Folks, my style is I grind beans the moment of, got the hot water going, French press. Mike's got one now because I refuse to let him live that Keurig life anymore. Although the Keurig version of Bones is legit. It's amazing. It's they they translate really well. But freshly ground coffee, what Bones is doing with their flavors and their single origin coffees are amazing. And their shipping is fantastic. It gets there quickly. But most importantly, folks, it's great coffee at a great price, but the price gets a little better. Why is that, Mike? That's right. Because if you go to bonescoffee.com right now, and they've been featured everywhere from Forbes, Women's Health to Hello Giggles, they have all of this fantastic coffee, 12 ounce bags, sample packs, single serve, K cups, like Nick mentioned. I offered, I ordered, excuse me, the Cinnabon, Sin S I N N, so a clever play on words there. And I'm telling you, this coffee in the K cup machine smells delicious and it tastes good. I am not BSing you when I say this. You go to bonescoffee.com right now. You order whatever you want. They got gears. They got mugs, apparel, tote bags, hats, in addition to fantastic coffee like Nick just mentioned. And then at checkout, little promo code box, type in can we please talk. All one word. You're going to get 15% off your first order just like that. Head to bonescoffee.com right now. Hey, everybody. Welcome into another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. On the program today, you know, we are rapidly approaching the State of Union on March 1st. There's a ton of issues facing the Biden administration, plus what is already happening in some key battleground states like Texas and Florida for the upcoming midterm elections. And nobody better to help us break it all down than political national politics correspondent. That's a mouthful right there. Sabrina Rodriguez. She's going to join us to break us all down. Plus, later in the program, the crisis at the border, Nick. Not the one down there. The one up there. Up on top. The latest on the Canadian truckers protest up in Ottawa and Justin Trudeau's recent emergency acts declaration. The overall impact this has had these protests across the U.S.-Canada border. 
But first, we welcome in to the Three Timers Club political national correspondent. I just mentioned it a second ago, Sabrina Rodriguez, Bad Bunny aficionado. She's coming to us from Miami, Florida. Sabrina, welcome back on the podcast. Thanks for having me and, and recognizing, you know, my fandom. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I'm in that fandom, but mainly because I'm Puerto Rican. I have to be. Um, listen, I want to first off, I don't know if I should congratulate you on this or uh, I wanted to get your take on this because I have no idea if you saw this. But Laura Ingram and a Fox producer recently used your article in an OTS in one of her segments. And it was talking about the GOP, you know, gaining ground and, and broadening their base. I would love to get your take on Laura Ingram citing your article. Keep my name out your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know this. So this yeah. is news to me. Um, I mean, I'm very proud of that story. And it was very widely shared by Republicans um, as, you know, kind of boosting the point of the inroads that they're making with Latinos, which are very real. Um, you know, I... Being from South Florida, I obviously always kind of have that lens looking towards South Florida, looking towards Cubans being Cuban. But um, I really wanted to kind of get out of that South Florida bubble and look at what's happening in other parts of the country. And after 2020, there was so much focus on South Texas as well. So I kind of went just I was, you know, didn't really go in with a specific story idea. It was kind of like, I just want to see what's going on. Let me start talking to people. And I just kept seeing you know, that it was Hispanic women that were running things in the GOP down there. Um, and, and that's kind of how the story evolved of just seeing, you know, that there's a historic number of Hispanic women running for office for, you know, as a Republicans. And, you know, in terms of like leadership and local party groups and such, it's also women that are that are heavily involved. So it was definitely a fascinating story to, to report out and, and kind of just tells the story of what's going on. You know, before before we get into your article, um, I wanted to ask you, because it feeds in perfectly, uh, a recent Reuters poll said 51 percent of Americans disprove of the job President Biden has done so far. What do you now that you have this national politics correspondent hat on? There's been a bunch of issues uh, domestically, covid inflation, there's right wing extremism. And then internationally, Biden's had this recent challenge with Russia, Ukraine, his handling of Afghanistan. What do you make of the ongoing issues or issues that have already ended that face President Biden in his first year in office and how his handling of some of this is going to affect the Dems in the midterms? Because your article gets into a little bit of what uh, policy wise these women feel that the Democrats maybe uh, you know, are moving away from and that could hurt them economically, socially. Yeah, I mean. You know, the number one thing that I hear time and time again when I'm talking to, you know, Republicans that are, you know, very adamantly and vocally against President Biden. But I also hear this from Democrats in a different perspective. I'll start with Republicans where, you know, they're dragging Biden left and right for everything he does. If he says something about Ukraine, it's wrong. If he doesn't say something about Ukraine, it's wrong. And that's we can insert issue here. And that is what's going to happen. There will be some type of criticism for what he does or doesn't do. Um, but the, the criticism that I think resonates the most is hearing from Democrats themselves who are obviously inclined to support the president. Um, and their biggest thing is that he's not doing a very good job of selling the wins he has. Um, and, and this is something that we heard as well as I think it was last week, the week's kind of blended already, but um, former President Barack Obama spoke to House Democrats in kind of like a private meeting with, with all of them um, a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things he said was that Democrats needed to do better a better job of being united on the things they win. And that oftentimes they're so focused on the things they haven't done. Um, Republicans, on the other hand, stay united on any front, whether they do something or they don't do something or they disagree on something, they won't do it publicly in the same way, um, which has, I believe, as we see politics playing out, has sort of been to the detriment of Democrats now as they're figuring out what their messaging is for 2022. And, you know, there was such a hype about them passing, you know, the Build Back Better plan because of Senator Joe Manchin, which we can get into that for hours, because of him um, has just straight up said, no, it's not happening. This is dead. 
Um, and, and that complicates things for Democrats. But when we get into, you know, the day to day conversations that I've had with voters and the folks in South Texas, for example, it isn't really about, oh, because Joe Biden didn't pass Build Back Better or it's because Joe Biden did an infrastructure bill that we didn't like. It's much more abstract. It's much more about how he's part of, you know, the destruction of the United States or the loss of family values or, you know, it becomes this much more mythical issue um, that that I think the Democratic Party has to kind of reckon with to some extent. Um, I won't say that I, you know, the Republican Party does, too. I mean, what does the Republican Party stand for right now is a whole other conversation, but given that Democrats are the ones in power and they want to stay in power, I think there's a real question about how they're going to fight back that narrative that Republicans have been pushing out for so long now. A couple of weeks ago, Mike and I did an episode around messaging as a problem area for Democrats. It seems like messaging has always been a problem for Democrats uh, with the exceptions perhaps of uh, 92 and 2008. Um, And then prior, prior to that Kennedy, is the problem with Democrats, just from what you're seeing nationally now, that is there a challenge of messaging for elements such as family values? Because there's a percept, there's a there's a thought among in the Democratic Party, perhaps more younger or on the more of the far left, that talking about family, talking about certain elements of that kind of run against what what that part of the party is standing for? I mean, in, in short, are we dealing with the fact that the Democrats continue to play out an identity crisis that Republicans simply don't tend to have? Yeah, I mean, Democrats are definitely going through some extent of, of an identity crisis in that way. But it's also because Republicans have been competing with them more effectively on this messaging. Um, this is a conversation I had not that long ago with um, Chuck Rocha, who's a big Democratic strategist, worked for Bernie Sanders, focuses a lot on Latino voters. Um, And we've talked about it kind of in the context of Latino voters, but I do think it applies more broadly. And it's that, you know, Trump took a lot of messaging from Democrats, not necessarily just on family values, but on this idea of, you know, the American worker and empowering American workers even if Republic, the Republican Party has long been known as like the party of big corporations, um, he took some of that more populist messaging that the Democratic Party had about we're on workers' side and whether the policies reflect that or not, when you take that messaging away from Democrats, it makes it harder for them to effectively sell it. Um, we've seen different reports. One of the best reports I would say with, with Latino voters, which again, I focus on a lot, but I think you see it across the board to some extent, is you know, Equis, um, it's called Equis Labs, they're democratic firm. And they did a lot of studies just trying to see why Latino voters voted the way they did across the country and why Republicans made inroads the way they did. And one of the interesting things for me of this report, it's straight, it's like 92 pages, so you can really get into it. But it was the fact that when they asked Latino voters, you know, if they, you know, they still saw the Republican Party as being the, the party of big corporations, but when it was about being on the side of workers, when it was on the party of the American dream, when it was the party um, of family values and, and all these things that, that were typically part of the democratic narrative, Republicans were way more in play than they had been before. Um, are they, do, you know, do Latinos look at the Republican party and a vast majority think that they're the party for the American dream or family values? Not necessarily, but even if you make small gains here and there, that disrupts the narrative that we know. Um, and, and I think, you know, again, you, you say, we can say that on Latino voters, but when we're talking more broadly, that is part of what's happening right now is what does the party stand for? And I'm sure, you know, Democrats will fight back and say, well, look at what's happening. You know, we're, we're talking about family values and the American dream and the Republican party is out here supporting fascism or the Republican party is out here, you know, trying to defend an insurrection, which is, of course, a, a big piece of this conversation no, as well. No, 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 Dick. No, no, no. Because I have this follow-up from the article. You could check out Sabrina's article at political.com. It's called The GOP is Gating Among Texas Hispanics and Women Are Leading the Charge. Sabrina, you just fed into the follow-up because there's a woman quoted in the article that says she wanted to keep the American dream alive, which she thinks the Republican Party stands for. 
was the follow up that you asked that woman, which American dream? Is it the one where we make America great again and restrict access for voting for minorities and we take away women's reproductive rights? Like, is there another dream I'm missing? Was there a part two to that? Like, what was the follow up that you gave her? And when presented with that, the outliers of this Republican Party that have at least started to bleed over and cross over to mainstream, right? The Matt Gates's and Jim Jordan's of the world, et cetera. Like, what was their response to that? Well, here's the thing, though. There, there's that disagreement on what the American dream is. So we'll get, I mean, and, and this is in these interviews where we would have that like point of, okay, but these are the actual policies that have been in place, or these are the actual things that have played out. But, you know, for example, for the person that I quoted there that said that Myra Flores, who's a candidate in South Texas, um, she wouldn't argue that taking away women's reproductive rights is a problem or is, you know, against the American dream. You know, she is very adamantly pro-life. She is very adamantly um, anti-abortion. Um, and she thinks that really speaks to the focus on family values that that, you know, the, the slogan for her campaign is make America godly again. So I think that that when you think of it that way, and you think of what her slogan is, then it does track what she thinks of as the American dream. I think people have different definitions or different views on on what that looks like. Um, and, I, you know, for example, another piece of it for her was like economic policies where she feels like. Democrats encourage um, people not to work or that, you know, some of the economic policies have forced or not forced, but have encouraged people to not go back to work um, with the pandemic. So there's like that, that disagreement that she has with Democrats on what even the American dream or the substance of that even looks like. Speaking of quotes, the other one that sticks out to me was um, later in the article, I think towards the end, you know, someone was quoted as saying, we're we're doing this because as mothers and career women, we're finally coming out and saying we're part of this party and want to make sure issues are paid attention to and heard. My wondering there is, is there a pursuit of redefining what the modern GOP is? Because this is the party that we do know is anti-reproductive rights. Um, it's the party that is pretty comfortable with misogyny. Uh, as played out through policy and, and talking points is the opportunity that women that Latinas in Texas see is they feel that they can reshape the Dem the Republican party, or is it more of, they see that the party is not so much about the party of Trump, but an opportunity to play a larger role as women. And for some reason, the democratic party doesn't seem to be welcoming of that. Yeah. I mean, the women that I spoke to, the, for example, when we would talk about, you know, traditionally the Republican Party is white men. That is the the public perception. That is the numbers that show it, and and white women too. But but you know, I feel like the the generic image of the Republican Party has been all these white men in power. Um, although we can kind of just say that about politics in general. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's totally fair. That is, it's right. not just it's definitely not just a Republican thing, but if we're saying who more so than the other than Republicans. White yes. old men. Right. But, <laughs> yeah. But for them, um, they they would argue with me and they they had this conversation with me and, and it came up with everyone I spoke to actually, come to think of, or at least the majority of them, that would say, you know, they hadn't experienced misogyny in their in in the party, that they getting involved in Texas politics had seen the party be extremely welcoming that they felt that their voice was being heard, that they felt like they had been empowered, that their experience had been very positive. Um, and, and that's kind of when, when we really get down to it. I mean, covering national politics, I have to look at these big trends and I have to look at the data and, and all of that. But when you're having these one-on-one -on -one conversations with people, everything gets murkier and more complicated because you can't dispute someone's experience. You can't dispute how someone has has perceived their what their political experience has been like. Um, I can give a data point on how many white men are in the Republican Party, or I can give a data point on you know some study that has shown what percentage of women have experienced you know sexism in the party, or you know things like that. Which I don't have those data points. I'm not saying any specific ones or anything like that. But but you can offer those. But if your experience contradicts that 
I'm not necessarily going to change your mind about it. Granted, my job is not to change their mind in this situation, but having those conversations with them, that's where it gets complicated because they're talking about a Republican party that might not be the national narrative of the Republican party or might not apply in certain areas, but for their experience in South Texas, that is what it's been. Um, and, And when we're talking then about, you know, women and career women, I mean, they're trying to focus on issues that are really important to them. So if they're very anti-abortion, then they're really trying to focus on that in their in their positions in like the local parties and as local party chairs. Or, for example, um, the person that I quote at the end, um, that she is the the GOP chair um, for one of the counties in South Texas. She was talking to me a lot about border security and how. She is a single mom in South Texas, has a young daughter and how, you know, and, and, and again, it, it complicates the bigger narrative that we hear about border security. Um, but, but talking to her, she was saying, you know, I'm not against immigrants. I'm not against, you know, people coming into the United States by no means. I'm not, you know, my family many years ago did the same thing. You know, many, you know, she's like a eighth generation Texas Texan at this point, but she was saying, but as a single mom with my daughter, I see people that have crossed the border that are literally walking through my backyard on a regular basis. And I don't know who these people are. I don't know, you know, there, there's no way of knowing who is coming. Um, and this is a very real, real life day-to-day thing I'm experiencing. I'm not someone in Utah complaining about border security and people crossing the border. I'm seeing it in my house with my small daughter by myself. Um, and that's her life experience. And then with that, she feels more aligned to the Republican Party. She thinks that they are more about securing the border and and preventing her experiencing that every day. Is it a matter of then that when we talk about Trump, the insurrection and and those elements, that that's more of sort of the national, almost at a federal level view of the party, whereas what the Latinas in Texas are saying is that's not what we define as the GOP. And we have an opportunity now to reshape it as it relates to local politics. Yeah. And I, and I would add, um, you know, talking to them, a lot of, a lot of the people that I spoke to and not just these Republican women, but a lot of people that I spoke to in South Texas that even still identify as Democrat and will vote Democrat come November. One of the frustrations they have is that they feel that this is happening because the democratic party has not shown up for them. Um, and that actually is not just a South Texas phenomenon. That is a national trend. Um, we saw, and, and again, I feel like I will cite multiple times this Eggies report that, that everyone should check out. But um, Eggies found that a majority of Latinos, not a vast majority, but a majority of Latinos said that they feel like the Democratic Party takes them for granted, that the Democratic Party shows up, courts them for you know right before an election, gets their vote, and then when it comes time to deliver, doesn't show up for them. So a lot of this, and, and from the conversations I had with the Hispanic GOP women, a lot of their, their grievances didn't always come from, oh, my, po- my views of politics or my policies align way more with the Republican Party. It kind of came from this feeling of, I've been voting Democrat my entire life. I don't even know why I'm voting Democrat anymore. And these people don't even show up for us or these people have been in power. And, and some of it is not only national experiences, but really local experiences of saying we've had the same mayor for X number of years. We've had the same lawmaker for X number of years. I don't see my life getting better. I don't see the life of the people around me getting better. So maybe it's time that we rethink our loyalty to the Democratic Party and try something new. Um, so it almost is this idea that they can look past this big, broad national narrative or this big, um, you know, national discussion about democracy and January 6th and stuff, if, if they feel like they're going to have a tangible improvement in their life on a day-to-day basis. Uh, I feel like it's, you know, talking about democracy, and, and I deal with this when I'm thinking of stories and stuff, and when we're talking so much about, you know, the threat that to democracy right now, it's a really abstract subject. <laughs> like, it's very hard to explain to someone... Yeah that has never lived through the loss of a democracy, including myself, mm, right. what that even looks like, you know? Yeah. I had a professor in college, um, you know, and it was like one of my poli-sci courses, like all politics is local. It's like one of the, the things that was on the board. There was a whole breakdown of civics. And it seems that that seems to be the conversation here is that Jan 6 doesn't affect you. If you have, if you're concerned, like your concern is people crossing the border literally through, you know, 
through your you know property. Yeah, and and let's not forget that a lot of people believe that the election was rigged. Like a lot of people believe. Mm. I don't have the the number handy, but there is a big percentage of Americans that believe that the election was stolen. So for a percentage of the United States of Americans, they believe that there was a reason why. Maybe there's people that don't agree with January 6th that think the election was rigged. Um, I firsthand experience have talked about it with my aunt. My aunt does believe that the election was rigged and she doesn't agree with what happened on January 6th. She thinks it's absolutely insane and ridiculous that people would storm the Capitol and do that. But she does think the election was rigged. She does understand why people felt so upset. So that is a part of the equation here. Sabrina, I don't want to invoke family because I did something like that with Eamon Mohideen from MSNBC on his podcast about American radical. Um, Did you ask your aunt if she thought the 2016 election was rigged? Yes and no. So that one wasn't rigged when he won, but it's rigged when he lost. Okay, I I don't I don't want to follow up on that because I don't want her to you know. I can add one thing though. I can I can add one. She's gonna find you, Mike. This this was one question that I one one resounding question I had from that conversation though was whether she thought you know what about 2024 so do you not believe what the outcome will be in 2024 because you no longer trust what the election results are right and she believes that trump is going to win in 2024 and that he is going to win and that him winning will prove that 2020 was rigged i see okay now uh, you know what i don't want to get in anymore into <laughs> because if he doesn't win, is it, right, right. We'll put that on Patreon. Because <laughs> if he does win, is he still? Is it still rigged? But you know what? We'll get into that. We'd we'll love to meet her one day. Now that I'm back in the Miami area, um, I want to transition because I thought of you the other day. Um, Peter Baker retweeted something of yours. I, I can't stand that man. Uh, and so I was like, oh, Peter Baker. Why but are we he, doing this to her? We're like Laura <laughs> Ingram, Peter Baker. Uh, well, hey, these, people, are, you know, these are people that are prominent and you know, signal boosting your work. How do you feel about that? Like, right, right. No, no, no. It's not about her work. It's it's more about the 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 coverage and the ire that the left has. Uh, aimed at New York Times, Politico. They've aimed it at a couple outlets because of if Joe Biden goes to Delaware on a Friday, right? Because DC and Delaware are separated by what, 78 miles? Um, it, all of a sudden, maybe more. And all of a sudden, you know, Peter Baker's writing a column, you know, Biden won't stay in DC. But then it's, you know, so I want to get the perspective of somebody that works there that sees political playbook, you know, get talked about. You, I, you're laughing already because it happens. I listen to a bunch of these podcasts and I'm I'm sitting there going, boy, if I only knew a couple of people that worked at political to ask this question, what do you what do you make of specifically the 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 ire that your profession gets for headline clickbaits and then chasing non-story stories? Damn, I know. Loaded question. Yo, I- really, you really got me here. You really. <laughs> hey. There's things never, we've never said like the guest before. What the hell are we doing? There's it's because she's family. Play the, there's things that I play the no comment card. And I feel like already by me saying no comment, it could be perceived as problematic that I'm saying no comment. Right. So you really put me in a no win situation here. But I apologize. Um. Well, how about this? Just think of like when you see somebody. Nick, uh, I appreciate your face for this because it really uh, is. <laughs> this is Nick's big phrase on this show. If you take something in isolation, so let's take something just in isolation, right? Your article is featured on a Fox News OTS, an over the shoulder for those people that don't know what the acronym is. So Laura Ingram is explaining why the GOP is gaining ground by using your article. And then uh, uh, a left-leaning, you know, station, podcast, whatever, could see that and say, do you see these headlines that Politico is producing? How would that make you feel if in isolation it was your article that was targeted as a talking point for one party or the other? Okay, no, I've given myself time here to wiggle room to think about Love it. a concrete answer here. So, I mean, it's frustrating. It's frustrating that so many articles are used in isolation to make a point at this point. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I won't, I, 
it would be impossible to deny that Politico has not gotten dragged on Twitter before for certain stories or for certain newsletter tops and the same for the New York Times and the same for the Washington Post and the same for every major publication in the United States where, you know, one story, if you write a story that is seemingly negative towards Democrats, then you will have Democrats and big, you know, Biden fans and Kamala Harris fans, you know, completely coming for you because you wrote this that is, you know, that that leans negatively to the administration. Um, however, it is not, I can't speak for columns, I can't speak for, you know, people's opinion pieces and such like that. That's a whole other conversation, a whole other story. But if the, the reporting is what the reporting is, like I did not, when I write a story, that says about something that's wrong with the Democratic Party, I am not setting out to write something bad about Democrats. Like I am not hating on Democrats. I am doing my job. I am reporting out what is happening. If I write a story that is negative about Republicans and it ends up being critical about Republicans because the voices in the, in the story and the voices that I've spoken to and reporting it out are saying these things, well, don't get mad at me, <laughs> like get mad at the people that are saying these things that are that are bringing attention to this issue that's happening. So that's kind of one of my frustrations often is like, don't kill the messenger. I'm reporting what's happening. And if you don't like what's happening, then maybe change it. <laughs> then maybe, you know, then maybe talk to the people that I talk to and, and talk to them about their opinions and, and what, you know, what's going on. Um, I did. Yeah, I saw I mean, I saw it a lot with the story that I that story of South Texas, where it got shared plenty by by Republicans, but I didn't write that story to be a mouthpiece for the Republican Party. I wrote that story because it's happening. Now, if that you know, if that's a problem to Democrats, that is. And when I do the alternative that is favorable to Democrats, if Republicans are mad about it, well, that's just what's happening. That's just what I reported out. It's the reality. Um, and I mean, in the larger scheme of it, in the larger landscape, um, you know, it is frustrating to see, for example, when one article is getting highlighted and absolutely criticized and saying like, this shows what trash a publication is, when there are hundreds of people that are employed at that publication doing amazing work. Um, one of the biggest media complaints that like, sets me off is when someone says, um, oh, they're focused on this, but nobody's paying attention to this other issue. Nobody's writing about this other issue. And then they link to a story about this other issue. And I'm just there like, hmm. <laughs> yeah. well, how, did, how could you link to that if nobody's covering this or nobody's paying attention to yeah. this? And friends used to send me that like, oh, they're not covering this on TV. And I go, oh, I didn't realize you watched that channel 24 hours physically. Like you can't like I'm sure it was on at like 11 p.m. and you just missed it. So um, I will say, though, that my experience, like one thing I can say positively here is I have thankfully never had the experience where someone wouldn't talk to me because they were mad about something that someone else wrote where I worked. That hasn't happened to me, thankfully. Like I, I do believe that yes, while people will complain about publications specifically and go out and criticize Politico or criticize New York Times or criticize any of these publications, it, when it does come down to it and I write a story, a good story that is well reported out that people can't go and criticize or pick apart because it's airtight and I reported it out, you know, as, intensely as I could, um, people don't, people can't criticize it. People can't find that story actually is a good example of that. And, and that was actually a conversation I had with my editor after the fact was it didn't really get picked apart, you know, at the end of the day, because there wasn't anything to pick apart, you know? So right. I will say like people can have criticisms about publications and stuff, but when it comes down to it, if you write a good story, people are going to read it and they're not going to say, Oh, because it was Politico or, oh, because it's New York Times, I'm not going to read it. Uh, people do still read it and do end up still sharing it, even if the next day they have a criticism of that same publication for a whole different story. Since we're all nerding out about journalism here, I'll, I'll bring this in. Um, Sabrina, have you ever had a situation recently, historically, where a story idea has come to you and you're trying hard to just get to be able to write it, get it out there? You're running up against an editor that just doesn't see 
a need for it, benefit, and then it gets shelved or that idea doesn't move forward, but then it pops up somewhere else, blows up, and you're just sitting there like, this I had this idea. Like, what <laughs> we could have gotten that kind of attention, clicks, whatever metric you want to apply. You know, you guys are back to back, to back on these. Um, you don't yeah. have to throw political under the bus. <laughs> oh, no, I wasn't. I've, only yeah, worked I mean- at pol- I've only worked at political. <laughs> <laughs> Let me caveat. Oh, Mike, yeah, Mike, let's, maybe let's let's clear that up. Let's that's not let me, fair. Let me preface. Let me preface anything I say. I love my job, and I really mean that. I'm not saying that to say that. I love the profession I'm in. Does it drive me crazy sometimes? Absolutely. I love the editor I work with, and I love many of the colleagues that I work with. And I say many, not to cushion any, but it's just there's people I haven't worked with. I mean, I work at a publication that's hundreds of people. Um, so I'm going to preface that before I criticize anything else. But um, yeah, but I, I, that has happened to me. That has happened to me where I've pushed for a story. And after a discussion with my editor, we didn't really, he didn't really see eye to eye with me or she didn't really see eye to eye with me. And then we didn't really do it. And then later on, we're like, well, hmm, we probably should have done that. But on the same end, I will throw myself under the bus and say, there have been stories where I too have thought, okay, this is a good story. I really want to write this story. Um, uh, but maybe not now. I think I should prioritize this other thing instead. And then I can come back to this because at the end of the day, we do have a limited bandwidth to do things. And I prioritize something over another story. And then that story comes out and blows up. And I'm like, really? Like what? <laughs> you know, like I really miscalculated this. I really thought, that I could wait an extra week or an extra two weeks and then get to that. And now it's irrelevant and now it's pointless and now someone completely beat me to it. So it is hard juggling and figuring out what to prioritize, especially when things are evolving so quickly. Like I, uh, one example I'll give, for example, was it was the first day of the Mexican president Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's um, presidency. And I thankfully had positioned myself at Politico as like the go-to person to, you know, for all things Mexico, for all things Mexican presidency. We really wanted to roll out a good story for the first day of his presidency. I believe it was December 1st, 2018. Um, And actually it probably is because it's really ingrained in my mind. And I had like, you know, worked to get a story done and was really, you know, working hard, really wanted to get attention, felt like, okay, well, obviously, if there's a day that people are going to care about the next president of Mexico, it's going to be on the first day of his presidency, because people are going to be wondering what's up with this guy. And sure enough, that is the weekend that George H.W. Bush died. So my story was no longer relevant because everyone was obsessively reading content about the former president of the United States is dying, which fair enough that, I mean, of course, mm-hmm. but, but it was one of those where, you know, you make plans and then life happens. Yeah. Sabrina, uh, we love your candor. Uh, I love political political. If you're listening to this, I do love your, your publication. <laughs> I, I think Nick and I, uh, as we read, articles him and i both go through headlines how would we word something we're in that business right now right like how how can i get a clip from this show to get people to engage with it so i totally get that angle of it so i do love political political don't write me any letters right now um sabrina before we let you go uh now that you cover the national scene for politico uh what is something you are following or covering right now or is going to be the focus of some of your articles coming up florida (laughs) my favorite subject. So I'm really interested in how, you know, the governor's race in Florida is going to shape up. Um, I'm really interested in if Democrats are really going to have given up on Florida. Um, It's a personal interest of mine, but I also think it really is relevant at a national level. I can give many, many, many compelling reasons for why. I was literally talking about it this morning with my editor because I was like, is the ship going to sail at some point on me writing these Florida stories if Florida's no longer viewed as a battleground state? And he was just kind of like, well, enjoy it while it lasts. So mm-hmm. I'm very focused on on 2022 in Florida and 
you know, what the Democratic Party is going to do, what the specific candidates are going to do, um, you know, the governor's race, for example, I mean, the primaries aren't until very late, and there are three candidates duking it out for the in the Democratic primary. Um, so a lot of that and, and what's going to happen in Miami-Dade, which, you know, I obviously have deep roots here, but but what's really going to happen when, you know, there isn't a bench of Democratic candidates to to really fight for, you know, what they lost in 2020. Go to political.com right now. Type in Sabrina Rodriguez. You can check out all of her fantastic work. The people at Political, you guys do great job. She's a national politics correspondent over at Politico. Sabrina, I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast. You can check out Sabrina at the latest Bad Bunny concert at American Airlines Arena in Miami. Sabrina, thank you so much for hopping on the pod tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Angie's list is now Angie, and caring for your home just got easier. Whether you need help with routine maintenance or a dream remodel, Angie makes it easy to see reviews, compare quotes, and connect with top local pros who can get the job done right. Plus, you can see upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. No phone tag, just the work you need done at a time that works for you. Angie's got your to-do list covered from start to finish. Book your next home project today at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. All right. Our thank yous there to Sabrina Rodriguez. She does great work. Look, yeah, I, I was playfully teasing there about the political stuff. But, you know, it, it one of the takeaways I had real quick is that local media coverage and what's, you know, important to people at a local level is way different than the national level. You know, if you only watch national news, right, and she mentioned a little bit of that, like in South Texas, these women, they, they, January 6th is not that big a deal to them. Yeah, like, yeah, those people were writing in their words and they don't care about that, right? They don't condone that. Sabrina gave her life example with her aunt. But um, at the end of the day, like, nationally, right, there's a percentage of people in the Democratic Party, probably 100%, that are like, that is an insurrection. And then there's like, maybe 40% in the Republican Party that are like, "Mm, insurrection, maybe. And then the rest are like, hey, those are political prisoners. And it's like, whoa. But in South Texas, the focus of her article, they don't care about that. That wasn't that big a deal. Because there's people crossing in that lady's backyard, like she mentioned. So I, I thought some of that is is really interesting. And it, it's, a, it's a great perspective when you think about why elections matter, right? And why canvassing and, and some of these, you know, the ground swelling movements of people, you know, knocking on doors and, and, and getting people, calling people at the call banks and stuff like that, which I've done for uh, one of the political parties, I will not mention, but I, and I've done that recently, you know, to try to get people to, you know, get out there and vote, whether it be mail-in vote or, you know, or same day and and notifying them of like what it takes to register if they're not registered to vote or the process, what you need for identification. Like there's a lot that goes into it, man. If you think about it from that local level, like you said, with, with our, our old professor over at Rutgers that that had that up in his room, like it is true. Politics is is really at the local level. Quick takeaway before we get into our, our, our main topic. You know, I'm reminded of that lyric from um, Sweet Home Alabama by Leonard Skinner. Um, Watergate does not bother me. Does your conscience bother you? Tell the truth. Uh, and it's it's so applicable. You know, I we I mean, we really personified that conversation with Sabrina really down to one single mom telling a story about why border security matters to her. And again, you mentioned I use this phrase a lot and I'll, I'll use it here in isolation. I, I get it. I mean, forget how I vote and my political beliefs for a minute. But if someone is witnessing something like that, or there's something so local to them, that's going to dictate their politics. And you know, larger to pull the scope back, that's a larger conversation about the Democratic Party's pre- presence down there, as Sabrina talked to. So I, I totally understand. Again, regardless of my political leanings, I totally understand where that voter is coming from, and the those women down there are making a case that. The GOP is not Jan six to them. It means something different based on what they want it to be. And that's truly what politics should be. Yeah. Well said. Let's get into our main topic. The crisis at the border. I teased it at the beginning of the show, but you mean the South, Mike? No, 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 no. Nick, Nick, look just to the north. Oh, Canada. The Freedom Convoy protests. I can't believe I'm saying that. Shout out to the Raptors. (laughs) started by Canadian truckers that have been opposing a COVID-19 vaccine or quarantine mandate for cross-border drivers. They've drawn people opposed to Justin Trudeau's policies. If you don't know anything about 
what I'm talking about and the crisis that was happening with the ambassador bridge that was blockaded by these protesters and, and these trucks that were literally parked there for days. Take a listen to this summation and Nick and I are going to come back on the other side. We're beginning across the northern border in Canada, where a truck convoy is blocking the busiest entry point between the U.S. and Canada in protest of COVID restrictions. Well, Nicole, this is what it looks like. This is the capital city of Canada, and it is complete gridlock around the downtown area. The truckers have been here for days, and just uh, recently, for most of the time they were here, there were horns blaring pretty much 24-7. So you can imagine being someone who lives here or works here. That was recently shut down by an injunction by a judge. So now it is quieter. It's just the, the hum of the engines and a lot of people uh, up near the parliament building. But that main news, what you touched on, the border between Detroit and Windsor, shut down by those truckers. That is the busiest port of entry, the busiest land crossing in North America. 40,000 people a day, $323 million worth of goods shut down. The caravan started in British Columbia, protesting the vaccine mandate for drivers entering Canada from the U.S., but evolving into widespread expressions of discontent over mask mandates, shutdowns, and Justin Trudeau's leadership. Okay, so listen, that is a lot of money at stake and a lot of illegal activity that was going on. I want to read you what recently just broke as of yesterday where Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invokes the Emergency Powers Act in the bid to end the protest. So, and like I mentioned, under this Emergencies Act, the government introduced measures intended to cut off the protesters' funding, and they took steps to reinforce provincial and local law enforcement with federal police. Trudeau said the blockades are harming our economy and they're endangering our public safety. We cannot and will not allow illegal and dangerous activities to continue. Now, there's a couple things here. Ontario, if you don't know Canada, it's broken up into provinces. Um, so like Ontario, Alberta, Quebec, Manitoba, Saskatchewan. Um, and so Ontario on Friday of last week declared a state of emergency. Um, you had the other provinces kind of opposed to this plan of Trudeau was trying to do because the Canadian parliament must approve the use of the emergency measures within seven days. So there are people in Canada opposed to him invoking this because it's never been invoked before. Um, and he feels like, listen, it's you just heard in the clip there, the amount of money and the economic impact that this is causing, the fact that these truckers are, are now starting to not only bother citizens, but there has been some that have stoked fear or at least, you know, lend themselves to say, we're going to commit acts of violence if some of these mandates are, are, are not removed. I want you to take a listen, though, Nick before we each give our takes on this, because the economic impact of it is is severe and one of the biggest border crossings here in North America. But then the problem is when you think about the vaccine mandates, right? And what is happening in Canada, we don't know much about it because we live here in the States and we know how 50 different states have all decided to impose or not impose mass mandates, uh, you know, vaccine requirements for returning to work. We know what Biden's done at the federal level with OSHA. But in Canada, it's a little lost on us as to what is actually happening in some of these provinces. So with that in mind, take a listen to what some of these truckers say the vaccine mandates are doing to harm their life. Our government's out of control and uh, and we're hoping that uh well, we're already seeing some of the changes, but we're hoping that uh, we could fix some of the issues that are going on that are hurting people all over the country. What is the stuff that you can't do right now as, as a non-vaccinated person? I live in Quebec, so it's a bit more intense than other places in Canada. But look, I can't go skiing. I can't go to Walmart. I can't go to Canadian Tire. I can't go to Home Depot. I can't go to restaurants. I can't go to bars. I can't go to the gym. And because you're not vaccinated, have you? is there business? Is there stuff you can't do in Canada now? Yeah, I, I'm like, I'm like, well, basically, if you want to compare Canada uh, to anything, it's like uh, Hitler, Germany, and we're like the Jews, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So with that in mind, um, I wanted to start out this because this is a serious issue, and then it tails off when you hear nonsense like that. And so let me start by saying this. In March of 2020, 
when the pandemic fully kind of shut down North American sports, life as we know it, cities went into, you know, lockdowns and, and you saw curfews imposed and everything like that. This was a scary time, right? And as we started to see messaging, you know, fumbled at the federal level here in the U.S., and around the world, by the way, nobody knew what this virus was going to do, morph into, et cetera, et cetera. Nick and I did our second episode on COVID-19 and trying to talk about the origins, how it impacted our life. That was in October, okay, of, of 2020, the end of October of 2020, prior to Operation Warp Speed and vaccines coming out and people thinking maybe there'd be a light at the end of the tunnel. Then obviously, over the course of the year, a new administration comes in from the U.S. side. Trudeau's still in power in Canada, right? So he's still following a little bit stricter guidelines in Canada. Um, but now there's more readily available vaccines that are starting to get distributed around the world. And then you're seeing hesitation from people taking it and stuff like that, et cetera, et cetera. I want to get into the core of what these people are alleging vaccine mandates and, and why they're even out there protesting. Because to me, I do not understand um, not understanding a vaccine mandate, like at the core of it. And I want to, again, I do this all the time, generalities, actualities. So let me speak about my life. Uh, I recently worked for a company prior to this that required proof of vaccination to return back to the office. I got vaccinated so I could return to the office to protect the people that surrounded me. And not only at the work, but my family, right? Because there are some people, my mother's a diabetic, you know, my stepmother's a diabetic as well. So there are other people with underlying conditions and that's why I got vaccinated, right? Um, but I don't have a constitutional right. Again, this is the example of here in America. I don't have a constitutional right to work at Vivo as a senior product manager, okay? It's not in the constitution, I looked it up. So I would have to go get another job, right? And within my circle of family and friends, et cetera, et cetera, maybe let's say 60 to 70 people, I know one person. That's been very, I'm not taking it. I, I, I'm not doing it, et cetera, et cetera. And for whatever reasons that she has done that, that's on her. But she understands that if she lost her job tomorrow, which they haven't made her come back into the office, but if she lost her job tomorrow, she knows she has to get another job. She's not going to be you know, protesting on a bridge that's blockading traffic and trade between two countries and having a huge economic impact. I'm very befuddled. And I'm seeing it now play out. We just talked about local politics. I'm seeing it play out in my hometown, back in Harrison, New York, where I'm seeing now people, you know, protesting with signs that say unmask our kids, right? Like lift these restrictions. And you're starting to see, by the way, more states and provinces, by the way, I didn't even read in that article, Ottawa is starting to lax back on their, on their mask mandates. Like, I don't know if it's because of the protests that have happened, you know, with all of this, but you know, uh, they're they're already starting to scale back some of their their mask mandates in, in their province. That's, that goes into effect next week. So, if they had just waited another week, you know, anyway. But I'm seeing at, at the core, like in my hometown, these protests and involving kids and involving people that are so anti the mandates, and I I'm not getting it, Nick. You you got to explain it to me. I'm not understanding. Is it the word mandate or is it that the messaging around this vaccine is that it doesn't cure, right? Because I think a lot of people, a lot of people, and I, I, again, actualities, people in my family have been like, well, this vaccine is a preventative. It's not, and we had Dr. Offit on and he said that it's a life-saving preventative. So if you do get COVID, your symptoms will be mild. Whereas you know, you take the polio vaccine or something like that, you won't get polio, you won't get chicken pox, right, et cetera, et cetera, not a doctor. So, you know, don't write me any emails. Um, so that's, I think, maybe at the core of that, people feel like because this is structurally not curing, and it's just a preventative for symptoms, they feel like it shouldn't be mandated to go back to work to go back to an office. And I thought about that as we were preparing to talk about this topic. And I go, okay, I sympathize with that. But I don't empathize with that because you should still get it because at the end of the day, you should care about not only yourself, but the people around you and your family. And that's what this vaccine, as numerous people that have come on this program that either have worked for the administration prior or work in the medical community have all said, this is a life-saving, uh, you know, a life-saving vaccine. It has a high efficacy and 
It's a modern miracle. It's a modern miracle. I encourage people to go back to listen to Dr. Offit episode into the Omicron and what he mentioned about this vaccination. So I'm, I'm just mystified that people like what's happening in Canada will decide to lose their jobs, risk it all. Because, you know, the chance of you getting rehired, especially those clips of those two guys that we played that got circulated on CNN and on The Daily Show and across social media, now your face is plastered everywhere, making a nonsensical comparison to Hitler and, and the 1930s and 40s and, and what happened to the Jews in Germany. You're comparing that to you not being able to go to Tim Hortons. And that, again, it's not funny. Like it is funny that sentence, but it's not funny what you're protesting. It's not a real thing. Like you don't have a constitutional right in Canada, in the US to be a trucker. Like you don't have this right. Like if you lose your job because your job is requiring something in the policy, you got to get a new job. What don't people get about that, Nick? I think there's a, there's a sense of entitlement. Um, I think the, I think these people also, I think one important thing to note, and Mike, you and I were texting about this, is it's important to understand what percentage of people are we talking about. And it's funny because there is a huge economic impact to this most, you know, up until recently um, of these, of these truckers, uh, these truck workers, um, 85% are vaccinated. Yep. We're talking about 17% of people who, who feel that they shouldn't be mandate to do this. And what I would simply argue is at any workplace, the workplace reserves the right to tell you what they expect from you. Yeah, real quick, it's 83.5% of Canadians ages five and over are fully vaccinated. 83.5%. I remember reading that number and going, we're talking about a 16.5% of people that are showcasing, you know, this stuff. Anyway, yeah, it's and then and that's the thing. You can you can be unhappy with the mandate. You can make arguments about it. You can do anything you want. At the end of the day, your employer is saying, "This is what we stand behind. Get on this or get out." That's that's simply it. So, as the employee, you have to make a decision. But to say that you expect that, not expect, but it's your right to not have to to get vaccinated in order to keep your job. No. And I agree with I agree with Mike on this. I consulted the constitution the other day. Job protection is not there. <laughs> so you know you can be unhappy about this all you want to these folks, but your job is going to be gone. Um I remember reading, I forgot which publication this came from, but there was a story of a husband and wife who had worked um as at an auto parts plant. Um and that were were fighting this, you know, because they had lost their jobs, um, and this was their form of rebellion, like just side with the truckers. And what I would say to them, and they lost their jobs because of the vaccine mandate, is that I'm sorry you lost your job, but you had a choice here. You chose, you chose to go against what your company wanted from you, um, and you know, them's the breaks. I can't make it. I can't make it any more simpler than that. You know, when we thought about this topic, and you and I, you know, we wrote out some ideas about this. It's it's super simple, like to me. Like this is this is Staples' easy button. Like because this is this shouldn't be that hard of a concept to understand. Because I would argue, where are all you people when your job asks you to take a drug screening, and you have to go now to go take a drug test? right? Because I've had to take drug tests at other places. And yeah, there are still companies that do it. It may be archaic because based upon the state and and what's legal and what's not, but where are you there? Like, where are you protesting that they're asking you to take a drug test? Because I don't see anybody there. Do you, have you seen any drug test protests uh, recently? I didn't mean the rhyme right now. And oftentimes these kinds of people are the same ones that say, well, you know, we'll just stop doing drugs. Like if you lose your job, that's, that's your fault. You know, we said earlier when we talked about Sabrina, the interview is, um, you know, all politics are local. That's the story. That's really what resonates with us with that woman in te- in South Texas uh, as it relates to border security. And that's the same thing here. You know, all for as many arg- employment arguments as we want to have, as we can have, you know, to these folks, the one thing that they stick with is, you know, I, I should not be forced to take a mandate to keep my job. And I would say that your boss, your employer feels that way. And that's the argument, you know, to, to keep this, to keep this personal on my side, 
you know, my my organization, we partner with public schools through the New York City Department of Education. We work with parochial schools through the Archdiocese of New York, the Diocese of Brooklyn and Queens. Yeah, you know, we and in those different entities, and we work with other schools in New York as well. Yeah, you know, one thing that does come up often is, hey, your coaches, those who are coming into our buildings, they're vaccinated, right? Because if they're not, they can't come in. Right. And we've had a situ- we've had situations where you've had someone who actually was not vaccinated you know, for one reason or another, and that limited what that person, what kind of work that person could have. The person's still employed. You know, we can we can make that work, but we have to go with what our clients are asking from us, right. which is simply to be vaccinated. And again, I'm not even getting into a right or wrong about this. It is simply what it is. Entity X says you must be vaccinated to enter this building, to work with us, what have you. It is then your choice whether what action you want to take. And then you have to deal with the consequences. That's that's true in any place. I don't understand, although I do understand that people want some people want to make an argument of this because they feel they're entitled to their job. Right. And you're entitled to nothing. Correct. Unless you own the business. Employment, you know, yeah. Look. I, I sympathize with you if you work somewhere for 20, 25 years and all of a sudden they instituted this mandate. But again, you should get vaccinated. Nick and I are both vaccinated and boosted. Everybody in our family is. It's about this health and safety of not only you, but others around you. And again, hey, Mike, you're not a doctor. Nick, you're not a doctor. You're right. Ask a doctor. Like You don't have a right, a legal right. Just like if my job hears this episode and thank you to those of you that work with me that listen to these episodes but if, if one of them you know didn't want to get vaccinated and they made them go back in the they don't have a right to this job and neither do i i don't have a right to that job and i don't understand why people don't understand that but at least you brought up an important point yeah, about community sorry um that community focus of you know this is the right thing to do for you know, for those who are un- ineligible to be vaccinated, for example, like our two, our two babies, actually both of your kids, Mike, I don't think, yeah, Correct. they're not another over five years old. Um, so those two, you know, my youngest daughter, they're not able to be vaccinated. So when you make these decisions, understand very clearly that your actions potentially can directly affect those who can't be vaccinated, not to mention those who are immunocompromised, you know, for a variety of reasons, some people can't be vaccinated. And you're basically giving them the middle finger because you think your personal freedom matters more. And that's an indictment on the 21st century, because I think that's the larger conversation that with earlier vaccines, such as polio and such, there was pushback. I mean, we did, you know, we've we've talked about this historically, that that was part of the public sentiment. But in the end, a community, a dedication to the community won out. But for some reason, we're in a time now, and not even for some reason, I keep trying to create a straw man. Listen, people profit. People are profiting from misinformation. People profit from questioning this. Shout out to you know who over at Spotify. And there's an entire industry just raising outrage about this who themselves are vaccinated in many cases. Um, You don't have a right to your job if you don't want to get vaccinated. Don't want to get the needle, then you can go move on to somewhere else. Right. Uh, And that is the nicest way I've ever heard him say that. Uh, Speaking of, if you want to learn more about what's happening up in Canada, I would recommend uh, Reuters did a fantastic piece. They've been covering it uh, out of their Canada Bureau. And so this is going to be something that's going to play out over the next couple of weeks. But what a perfect tie in, because in the coming weeks, we have a legal analyst coming back on the program and we're going to get into vaccine mandates and some other items that are playing out from the legal sphere because the Supreme Court here domestically has ruled on vaccine mandates in previous cases. And I'm interested to get her take as to where everything will net out. Um, If you want to watch any of the video clips of our interviews, head to youtube.com, type in Can We Please Talk podcast. You can check out all of the video clips of all of this online audio podcast platforms. You know them by now, Apple, Spotify, Google, Good Pods. Shout out to everybody listening to us over on Good Pods. Acast, our hosting platform, our presenting sponsor, Bones Coffee. Head to bonescoffee.com. 15% off your first purchase. Can We Please Talk is the promo code. We thank each and every one of you for listening to our show each and every week. We couldn't do it without you. As always, I'm Mike Leon. Grateful to you all and grateful to my partner, Mike. I'm Nick Severi. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.